0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. From 1861 to 1865, the country was split asunder in a devastating civil war between the northern and southern states. The causes of the war are still debated. What is not debated is the terrible toll that the war took upon the nation and its citizens. Tennessee was the center stage in the war in the West. The last to embrace secession, it became occupied by Union troops early in the war. What was it like for Tennesseans to live in occupied territory? Conversely, what was it like for Union troops to live in a seceded state? Today, we are going to focus our conversation on the Union occupation of Tennessee during the Civil War. I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Good morning, Barry.
2: Good morning, Tom.
1: Together, we are joined by Dr. Thomas Flagel, also a professor of history at Columbia State, Dr. Flagel received his undergraduate degree from Loras College, followed by master's degrees from Creighton and Kansas State Universities. He earned his Ph.D. from Middle Tennessee State University. Dr. Flagel is a prolific writer, having authored numerous volumes, including War, Memory, and the 1913 Gettysburg Reunion, published by Kent State University Press in 2018. Battle Briefings Gettysburg, published by Stackpole Books in 2018, as well as several books which are part of a series of History Buffs Guides. He's on the board of the Tennessee Preservation Trust. Dr. Flagel, welcome to History's Hook. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Let's sort of start off generally, if we can, about occupation in Tennessee. So occupation of captured territory is sort of the epitome of warfare. When the grand strategy of winning a war includes the capture and occupation of the enemy's land, there comes two divergent and opposite reactions, that of the occupier and that of the occupied. Uh, once it became clear that the war was not going to end in a month, what was the Union government's strategy of occupation?
3: It was really interesting that um, when I discovered uh, something that I wasn't expecting, it kind of threw me for a loop. Because I had this grand scheme of an idea of how the Civil War played out, I didn't quite comprehend how occupation fit into it. turns out the United States uh, government was saying, aside from some bloodbaths we were not anticipating... And the creation of something we never had before, these things called national cemeteries, we think were doing relatively well in the beginning of 1862. Well, for the Union, they were. They were reaching northern Alabama. They were were making some inroads on the east, but on the west, where the majority of the population lives, free and enslaved, where most of the production is, where the largest city by far in the Confederacy exists, New Orleans. Well, they captured New Orleans in April 1862. They take Nashville uh, uh, not long after the victories at, uh, at Forts Henry and Donaldson. Like, everything's going great. And I, I just was so fixated on the Gettysburg aspect of it. I didn't realize there was an offensive that was twice as long and went twice as far as Lee's foray into Pennsylvania. That being Braxton Bragg's uh, offensive in 1862, late 1862. He takes two massive armies, grabbing some of, of his troops all the way from the Gulf of Mexico in some of the longest railroad transportation during the war, launches these from Alabama, a little bit from Mississippi, mostly from Georgia, and sweeps north. And so much of this ground that the Union had gained, they have to start surrendering. They maintain Nashville, they maintain uh, Memphis, they maintain New Orleans, but they lose just about everything else. And as they sweep, as the Confederates sweep forward, they're going all the way into Kentucky. And there are people in Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio going, oh, we're next. Uh, these guys are going to come sweeping over us. Everything we've been doing to them, they're going to do to our hometown. And the problem about this is, friend or foe, these are armies in the tens of thousands. Your city, your town is going to be eaten clean there's going to be arson, there's going to be death and destruction. Oftentimes, these, these massive roaming snakes leave your area, and then it's gutted of food, gutted of animals, and it's the civilian population that has to deal with thousands upon thousands of wounded and dead. So when this all fizzles out in Perryville, the population of the north is still, still terribly scared. But we, in the modern era, going, well, it, it all kind of fizzled out, and Gettysburg is a lot more important. In reality, at that time, the federal government goes, oh, we're not going to do this again. That, in late 1862, in response to Bragg's offensive, the Union Army, and the Union government goes, we're going to do something different. Every piece of ground we're going to take, we're going to plant ourselves, and we are not leaving. And this is especially for major transportation sites and major cities, including most of the major cities in Tennessee.
1: So there is no strategy on a governmental level until... That Confederate offensive ends. Yes,
3: and even then, in eighteen sixty-two, late eighteen sixty-two, early eighteen sixty-three, the federal government's going. Well, we don't necessarily how to know how to do this. We're not big into occupation. The war with Mexico was over so quick. We didn't have to occupy
1: that area long. That was going to be my next question. So, uh, I find it fascinating. So, for many of those in leadership positions, be it politically or militarily, their experience in warfare comes from the U.S.-Mexican War, mm-hmm. really the the first foreign war. President James K. Polk, a Tennessean had a very defined occupation strategy in Mexico. He ordered that supplies that were needed by the occupying American army in far off Mexico be purchased locally, that they were paying a fair price for what they needed. Looting was prohibited. It was strictly enforced. He sent Catholic chaplains with the army to comfort the Mexican populace who worried that the occupation of their land meant the loss of some of their most basic belief systems. Was any part of that Polk policy of occupation... Uh, One of appeasement towards civilians, uh, what would become known, I guess, in the 20th century as winning the hearts and minds uh, of the the people. Was any of that considered by the federal government during the Civil War? Largely, it was a math problem in that,
3: Barry, tell me, and Tom, how big was at its peak the United States Army when it was in Mexico?
1: Oh uh so the standing army leading up to the war was only about two thousand altogether uh it It grows more than doubles uh by the time they're in Mexico, but we're talking about much smaller numbers mm-hmm. in in the u s mexican war than than what we're dealing with in the civil war
2: and a, and a lot of a lot of volunteer units from from the states that were part- that
3: would uh, uh supplement that small regular army right so at its peak. The Union Occupation Force in uh, March and April of 1863 in Franklin was approximately 10,000. So that's in par with the entirety of the United States Army and Marines in Mexico. That In Franklin. And you're talking about tens of thousands more in Nashville and then support networks in Kentucky and St. Louis. This is such a, a massive acceleration of warfare. And, and keep in mind that there's nearly as many... Uh, cattle and horses going along with these soldiers. And those animals eat eight times as much as a human being does. And as a consequence, the United States Army has to experiment. They try some foraging, and that's one of the reasons why Middle Tennessee becomes such a, a, a central part of whether or not the United States is going to succeed in this. Their two big targets are capturing all of the Mississippi, especially of Vicksburg at this point, and capturing Atlanta. Third objective, Richmond. Richmond. Well, with these two Western critical targets, Middle Tennessee especially is so vital because cotton, tobacco, great. Can't eat it. This is the breadbasket of the West. This is where uh, uh, the number one producer in hogs, Middle Tennessee, in the entirety of the Deep South, or the South altogether. Uh, Second in horses production, just behind Texas, and Texas is so far away, transportation is not logical. Huge in beef cattle. And so there's a lot of confiscation very early on, but even then things start to get picked clean. The interesting thing about that is if you're anywhere near a road, if you're anywhere near a rail line or anywhere near a river, your stuff's gone. If you are in the hinterlands, you're fine. About half of all Confederate uh, uh, area counties didn't see a thing. The vast majority of enslaved in the West never saw a Union soldier. But those who are on the transportation routes and those living in the towns and cities, the hubs of where these things are collected, they're going to get wiped clean. And as a consequence, over time, the United States Army goes, we have to transport uh, in from where the food is safe, the north. And thankfully, the Midwest and the United States uh, steam on river and rail uh, industry is able to bring all that stuff in. But that's not until summer and fall of 1863 So there's a strange evolution, this ad hoc experimentation, when the United States is trying to figure out how do we feed ourselves, let alone occupy occupy these places. The interesting thing about this is, and I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but one of the ways there's a strange symbiosis of Confederate civilians, United States military, and African escapees, is that they come together at these occupation sites, and the United States Army goes, you cooperate, we feed you. If you don't, there isn't a morsel within 40 miles, so you better cooperate. And indeed, the enslaved rushed upon these Union occupation sites and further uh, exacerbated the food issue, but the United States Army goes, "Uh, uh, you have to go away. And the enslaved go, no, we're going to be part of this cooperation. You cannot maintain these sites without us. And indeed, you have this strange combination of these three very disparate forces coming together. Franklin, Nashville, Memphis, Chattanooga, and it's hardly ever talked about. And I didn't know it existed until I worked on this.
2: It's interesting to me how the uh, the union occupation forces in Middle Tennessee uh, basically adopted a, a de facto uh, emancipation policy, even though Tennessee was exempted from Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. It was uh, one union official said, uh, before the end of 1863, that slavery is dead in Tennessee.
3: That's a brilliant point. And that's uh, uh, one of the ironies of this, is that I really think, you know, I, I moved to Tennessee on purpose, uh, largely because Barry and others hired me, and other because that's where here's where the Civil War is won and lost. The East is a stalemate. Thomas Connolly, the great historian, uh, said, Lee's got an easy job. He's got the ocean to his right, the Appalachians to his left, and just a handful of bridges and fords upon which the Union Army has to cross again and again and again. He's got a 150-mile front. There's a 1,000-mile front in the West. And Tennessee is where slavery truly dies. That that the Union Army is essentially... I honestly think the Emancipation Proclamation is already recognizing what's in place. And in fact, uh, th- there's increased scholarship and evidence that indicates... The Union Army did not free the slaves. The slaves freed themselves. They found any particular position. When the Union Army passes through in 1862 and making all those inroads, most of the enslaved stay, well, this is a temporary thing. Here's where my family is, here's my, why would I follow an army? They're heading toward a battle. But when there's fortifications, like uh, in Columbia, especially in uh, Franklin and Nashville, Memphis and Chattanooga, the enslaved in these areas start to say, well, there's a place where I can get a job. There's a place where I can hide behind lines. There's a place that needs me. There's a place my children and I can't be recaptured
1: we're going in. So the strategy of occupation really changes the game. I mean, oh. it changes how the war is waged entirely. Let, let's get into a little bit of detail if we can. So Tennessee first becomes an occupied territory, as you said, following the capture of Forts Henry and Donaldson by General Grant. Describe how the policy of occupation then begins in Tennessee. You said they, they capture territory and then they aim to hold it at that point. So they're starting to build forts. What, what, are, what are the first What are the first large areas of fortifications in Tennessee, in Middle Tennessee?
3: The largest uh, stone fort anywhere in the United States, uh, inland anyway, is Nashville. And then there's a multitude of other forts around, the main fort being Fort Negley that you can visit today. It's one of the greatest sites I've ever seen. Uh, Franklin itself has Fort Granger, but six other smaller forts around it. Murfreesboro becomes the largest inland earthen fort in the entire United States. The, the most protected cities on planet Earth are the Confederate Richmond, uh, Washington, D.C., and Nashville. And when this happens, there's this strange uh, but can, but rather strong pattern. The first thing the Union Army does is we have to clear cut. And one of the reasons why there's this narrative of ultimate destruction in the Confederate uh, civilian narrative is that the Union Army does come in and, with African-American help, lays waste to these forests. The Middle Tennessee used to be one of the greatest sources of hardwoods in the entire United States for uh, building construction. They were basically the I-beams, the steel industry, plus furniture and uh, tools. Well, the Union Army starts wiping out this vast forest in order to create you know, views where you can see for a long period of time. And so it does look like a desolate netherworld for the people who are living in these areas, like Murfreesboro, Franklin, and Nashville. The next is starting to build up these forts, these bastions that are so close to each other that they support each other. Any fort can fall, but the others will be able to cross current and slam away anybody who's trying to fend. And as a consequence, then you have these blisters on earth that are having, you know, very few men are actually inside them, but there's encampments of tens of thousands around them and and mule and horse parks that go on for acres upon acres upon acres this looks like the world is turned upside down. People walk into their cities and go, I, I, don't, I don't recognize a place. In fact, I'm losing my... My bearings, I don't have uh, landmarks anymore.
1: There's some amazing photographs that are taken. George Bernard, I know, by 1864 is in Nashville, 1865, and d- takes some amazing, breathtaking photographs where you see some soldiers, uh, but it's sort of a panoramic view of what used to be forests. It's, as far as the eye can see are fields with tree stumps. It's exactly as you're describing them. What used to be these lush hardwood forests are now just clear cut to make, to make these forts. to to make Fort Negley specifically. You were kind enough to send me your introduction to a publication you're working on, on, on union occupation. And and I'm going to quote you if I can. I I think this is brilliant. Union garrisons engineered their forts to be overt, unassailable expressions of power, much the same way Southern gentry fashioned a big house on their sprawling plantations. I, I think that's a wonderful description. These things, besides being supply centers, and defensive works are symbolic. This is the Union placing a, a foothold in, in the Confederacy. And uh, it means something to everyone who has an opportunity to see these things.
3: Yes, and I was previously describing how the Union Army would clear-cut these areas so their artillery and guns and, and rifles would have a clear uh, of light, uh, line of sight. But, yeah, uh, of course the antithesis is true. It's we are creating something that is to belittle and frighten anybody who can look up at it. There was a young woman who lived in Nashville who, her family is very strongly Confederate. She especially. Teenagers, man, you you want to talk about people who are uh, very pro-Union or very pro-Confederate. Look at teenagers, especially females. And uh, she comes back from Ohio where her father had sent her for safety. And she comes back and sees these hornet's nests and these glistening tubes of artillery. And she thinks... First, I don't recognize my hometown, and second, there's nothing we can do to remove these.
1: Yeah. Uh, how how did forts impact the towns and cities in which they were located?
3: Far more than I anticipated. My doctoral dissertation, I was just going to do Fort Granger up in Nashville, uh, up in Franklin. And then I realized, oh, I have to talk about more. And eventually I asked my professors, I, I think I need to cover the entirety of the Western hemis- <laughs> Western theater. And they go, uh, yeah, you probably do. Go find out what. Because there's no really good scholarship on forts yet for various reasons. And so I started looking into these. And the forts end up being, well, if you've ever been to a castle in Europe or have ever seen a castle anywhere, there's something called the keep, the very last center of defense. And that's what those actual forts, quote unquote, that you see are. And they're very rarely occupied by any troops. But that's the idea. If you are attacked, you go there. In reality, I start with chapter one. What is a fort? There's the keep. And then outside of that, you have felled trees and sharpened ends, the barbed wire of its time. And beyond that, you have rifle pits. And beyond that, you have other smaller forts in support. And then beyond that, you have the camps and the mule parks and the horse parks and the cattle pens. And beyond that, you have the city or town itself where the Union Army comes in and says, we not need that business, we need this government building, we need this school, we're going to turn these into headquarters and hospitals and supply depots, we're going to build other things too. Uh, There's entire blocks that are confiscated in Nashville. And they say, well, this is ours now. But we do need accountants, we do need farmers, we do need people who know how to fix harnesses. And so these become massive factories, if you will where the Union actually starts doling out jobs to white and African-American alike. And so these forts actually are these strange layers of defense that go out for miles. So when And, and even beyond those miles, you will have uh, picket lines. And beyond the picket lines, you will have cavalry, cavalry uh, surging around the area, uh, keeping an eye out. So when you see a fort that is preserved around here, keep in mind, that's just the keep. That's the... The center, the the nucleus of a massive cell
1: that reaches out for miles and miles. And there's other forts nearby doing the exact same thing. And they're all supporting each other. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, to the community in which they're found, and on the one side, they're destroying the community as it once was. But at the same time, it's it's becoming sort of an economic engine to that community as well. We're going to take a quick break. uh, And when we come back, let's talk more about these forts.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're talking about Union occupation during the Civil War. I have joining me in the studio today my partner, Dr. Barry Gidcomb, professor of history at Columbia State Community College, along with Dr. Thomas Flagel, also a professor at Columbia State uh, and an expert on Union occupation. Dr. Flagel We're talking about these forts and how they're impacting the communities in which they're found. Who are building these forts? Uh, The answer is yes.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Because it starts out with the Union Army, and then they realize uh, we need um, people to maintain these. They're mostly earthen forts. Uh, It doesn't take much time and weather to start to wither away the walls. And then, of course, there's a tremendous amount of cleaning, cooking, and uh, animal care, uh, maintenance, construction. And then so there's more and more of the i'd say office jobs middle class jobs and laboring costs that are surrounded by anybody who declares loyalty to the union by way of these written oaths and again many of these oaths are written so their families can eat and the idea of having a job then the african american uh, enslaved start coming in and they basically force themselves upon the union army and the confederate civilians and say we'll do the cooking we'll do the cleaning and uh And the Union Army goes, as I said before, please go away. But they said, no, 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 we can work for a lot less. We have a reason to be here. We're going to definitely be loyal to the Union, where it's not going to be some sort of guessing game with a written oath with the Confederate population. And so more and more uh, African-Americans start to build these forts. There's somewhere between 600 and 800 African-Americans who die from exposure and starvation and illness up in Nashville alone building the multitude of forts and miles of trench works that are constructed up there. That's how big the—tens of thousands, really. And if you ever see uh, an enslaved person reaching for freedom, they're almost always within proximity of a fort.
2: You uh, talked about this this landscape of, of occupation, uh, beginning with the key and kind of working out. Uh, where do the contraband camps fit in that landscape?
3: That's a great question. And the interesting thing is the Union Army goes, where do we put them? And essentially there's, a, not unlike other issues, uh, an ad hoc experimentation to this. And it's usually really close to the center of operations because that's where the labor is needed. And that's where the uh, African-American enslaved feel safest. For example, up in Nashville, and we see it elsewhere in Memphis, in Chattanooga, uh, in, up in Kentucky, there will be uh, the fortification system. And the strongest part is where you will see the African-American uh, enslaved escapees. They will be very close to the defenses for their own purposes, for safety. That's the safest place. And also, that's where they can get the junk, the refuse, the, anything that is tossed away, food-wise from the depots and kitchens, um, any scraps, old tents, uniforms, anything they can use. And they create their own little cities, So these contraband camps maybe have a a house or two as headquarters where the officers will try to maintain some sort of order. But the African-Americans themselves, out of what the whites, uh, Confederate and Union, don't want, construct their own places. The sad thing about this is, and Gregory Downs does a brilliant uh, work on this called Sick from Freedom, because they're so unwanted, because they're eating what everybody else doesn't want, because they're in these ramshackle constructions, uh, the enslaved start to die in very large numbers, somewhere around one out of four enslaved human beings uh, die in the process of living in these contraband camps. The interesting thing is very few slaves escape before the war uh, because of very little opportunities. And why would you want to leave your base of support, your family? But when they do, it's almost always a young male and it's almost always a young male looking for his family, not freedom that had been sold somewhere else. During the Civil War, we see tens of thousands. It's a trickle at first and then a flood tide, and it's mostly entire families who escape, and they're looking for freedom, and they find it at the forts, and it's almost always led by a
1: middle-aged woman. Interesting. Let's talk about how the Union Army moves forward. So uh, we have Fort Negley in Nashville, which becomes sort of the bastion of the West, moving south into Franklin, Fort Granger becomes sort of the Union foothold there. Moving south again to Columbia, Fort Meisner is on the highest point in town here, a place called Mount Parnassus. Uh, Fort Meisner was named after the garrison commander who was here for a time, who interestingly was, was I don't want to say loved, that's probably too strong a word, but he seemed to care about the local inhabitants, uh, which was a pretty strong contrast to General Negley, who had been here in Columbia and kind of ruled with an iron fist. Let's talk about that for just a second. These garrison commanders and fort commanders, what kind of role, what kind of power did they wield?
3: Phenomenally large. I mean, it's, it's something we all experience. That we can have kind of a, you know, not a great place to work. But it can be great if you have a good manager. And you could work at a fabulous place. But if your uh, superintendent or your manager is an awful person, then it's going to be miserable. Same thing. The, the federal government just had some policies in place. But it all came down to the individuals in charge. And uh, that's where it could change any given time. There are times when when if a a union officer was placed somewhere else, the population would be very sad to see that person go because they're going, well, we're rolling the dice to see what we can get next. And this happens frequently in many different places. And it even can come down to the neighborhood of uh, where the captains and lieutenants are and how cooperative they can be. And there's sometimes you have political appointees who are so viciously angry at the white population, that they can be, they, they, con- they confiscate houses, they confiscate uh, materials just to make, especially the upper-class whites, feel like they're powerless. The biggest thing is to deport a family out. The interesting thing about that, talking about Tennessee, if you were to transport somebody from the Union to the Confederacy, that was oftentimes just shipping somebody from Franklin to Spring Hill, from Memphis to a little farther south. Um, it's, it's amazingly small. This is for about a year and a half. This is the front line, right where we're sitting of the civil war. But the interesting thing about that is that after the war, these wealthy families are the ones who are going to be writing about these, these events and they're going to play the victim card. We were devastated. We were thrown out of our house. They were tormenting us. These houses still stand and the families oftentimes come back. The Carters, the McGavicks, they're fine. Many times, one woman who was deported out of uh, um, out of a, a city in the south, she was actually going. Oh my gosh, they're throwing me and my family out. She travels four miles to another plantation that she owns, and she's fine. But after the war, she talks about how she's been devastated.
2: Yes, and, and one of those uh, one of those was Mrs. Caroline Meriwether Goodlett, who would go on to found the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy in Nashville and when you look at her diary as a young woman uh, at the beginning of the occupation in Union occupation in Nashville she has nothing but good things to say about the union occupation but years later her her memory is a little different
1: <laughs> were there concerted efforts at resistance by people who, that lived in occupied towns.
3: I honestly think this is why it was so hidden to me and so hidden to, to my colleagues like Barry and others, and that we didn't know about this because the Union uh, soldiers just wanted to go home. They wanted to get this over with and go home. The enslaved, 90% of them could not read and write, so the opportunity to leave back written records are not there. I think I discovered a shame element for those who are under occupation, and just by pragmatism, had to cooperate. They had to sign loyalty oaths. They had to take jobs. They had to take uh, firewood. I mean, had to. They were smart enough to have a negotiated relationship. And after the war's over, I think there's a tremendous amount of guilt among the population that cooperated in these sites. And as a consequence, they kind of erase their own cooperation, if you will, and, and just ignore that it ever happened. There's very few cases of resistance, but one of my favorite is, it was, uh, it was either in Natchez or Memphis, I can't remember. But this, uh, this man was going by house to house to say, you know, have you signed your loyalty oath? Uh, will you please pen this in? We don't have your name on record. And he came upon a young woman and uh, she said, no, I'm not going to sign it. She didn't have a whole lot of wealth, so she wasn't much of a threat. But he goes, well, you have to sign it or we have to take you out of town. And she goes, No, I have my boy my bow in the Confederate Army. And the guy goes, Looking that she was getting angry, and her fists were bigger than my head, I decided to let it go.
1: <laughs> there there was some violence even locally here. Columbia mayor James Andrews killed two Union soldiers uh in the front door of his business here in Columbia. The soldiers were from the fourteenth Michigan. And came in demanding money instead of provisions. He was in the habit of selling provisions to to the occupying forces that were in town. Refusing, the soldiers became aggressive, and Andrews drew a pistol and shot them both dead. He was arrested and sent to Nashville, but was released just a few days later, presumably because he acted in self-defense. So this was not uh, always amicable, this occupier versus occupied uh, agreement, uh, forced agreement by the people who, who lived here. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Uh, how how do Union soldiers react to pro Confederate c- citizenry? It's it's it's
3: interesting. That story is so much in tune of what I saw again and again and again. Most of the commanding officers they they ruled in a different way. The provosts would have their own method of doing things. But the one thing they could generally agree on is we don't want disorder. They were very strict about having soldiers get drunk. They were very strict about uh, soldiers, ram uh, ramshackling police. They said, if you do this, we lose control. You're creating internal issues. And many of these men are far away from home. They're not necessarily the strongest unionists. Many were suckered into, and I say suckered into, volunteering for the war because otherwise they'd be drafted and they couldn't pick where they go and they wouldn't get hundreds of dollars in incentive money. So there's a lot of frustration among certain types, and any community will have its bullies and its drunkards and its 'er ne'er-do-wells, and they are sucked into this massive war. So there's a strange understanding between the officers and the population, wherever they're existing. Let's just try to keep things calm. One issue that is not necessarily curtailed is by late 1863, 1864, when there's more and more African-American units. And the whites would go off uh, uh, into the field fighting the, the, the Confederate Army, and African-Americans become a higher and higher percentage of the populations garrisoning the forts that uh, many Union officers go, make as much noise as you want. We'll use noise night and day. You're transferring, transferring to a skirmish line. You're going uh, out from the field back into the fort. You're uh, moving from one camp to another make a lot of noise, play musical instruments, uh, uh, scream and laugh. We want to intimidate the neighborhoods and make sure, listen, your world is turned upside down. And that's, uh, it's it's a fascinating way, the way noise would be used. Oftentimes these forts would, uh, if there was a dignitary visiting, or if there was a national holiday, would fire off their cannons and salute. There was this constant roar, this industrialism of these forts that imposed upon the population. This is one of the reasons why you were making a great point earlier before our break, that there is this massive, it's not like a construction site. You see a beautiful little field and forest and the bulldozers come in. That's the Union Army. But then you have these houses and streets and infrastructure start to come up. Uh, it, it is shocking to see these places hyper-urbanized in a matter of months and with all the problems of sewage and illness that happens and the dead trees and dying animals. But in its place rises a city where people can be fed and people can find jobs. The population of Nashville essentially doubles in a matter of a year, for example.
1: With union occupation comes union politics to these occupied towns. How does that play out? How how does politics and bringing uh, federal ideals, Republican ideals uh, into occupied Tennessee have an impact on these communities and on Tennessee?
3: It's really fascinating. There's a lot of Midwestern soldiers who are not pro-freedom for the enslaved. And that's something I think a lot of students in young ages don't quite get, north, south, and east, and west. Most northerners, especially Midwesterners, were not pro-slave. They were anti-slave owner. They were sick of seeing this, quote-unquote, democratic world, have president after president, being a very uh, wealthy Slave owner, landowner from the south. They go, wait, 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 wait. And this is something that's really fascinating that's come up in historiography in the last 10 years. And I, I missed it. It was right there in front of my face and I didn't see it. That in Europe, especially 1848, there's these revolutions left and right going, wait, we middle class and working class, it's a new world, new industries, new technology. Why is it that the landed gentry, the princes and the kings and the lords are lording over us? That old world is gone. It's, it's what you know. It's your engineering. It's your craftsmanship. It's, it's your literacy, your education. Why is it somebody is more powerful simply because they inherited something? And then they had these revolutions and the Irish potato famine. And the Irish have good reason to hate the British because they're in the same plot. Why is it that these British can come over and own our land and basically make us their breadbasket? And they're essentially enslaved and put us on such tiny plots of land. The only way we can survive with enough calories is to grow potatoes. So there's this animosity in Europe, especially among middle class and working class. And when 1848 erupts, where do so many of them move to? The United States, especially the Midwest, seven out of eight uh, uh, immigrants in the United States from Europe move to the North because they know they can't, they're just not gonna make it in the South. If you don't own land and human beings, you're not gonna make it. And you're gonna be competing for jobs for people who aren't paid, this is not gonna work. So they move to the North and then they come here and they see senators. And, and Supreme Court justices and presidents who are wealthy landowners. We go, we, we escaped Europe to get away from this. And now we see this again. And this war erupts. And many of these immigrants, German and Irish and, and Scandinavian and Polish, no, no, no. We're, we're going to fight on the side of the middle class and the working class against the landed gentry. That's how they see the civil war. And they come down here, and they do have this Democratic-Republican ideal. I think the most venomous and passionate soldiers in the Civil War are the immigrants. And one out of four Union soldiers were not born in the United States.
2: And, you know, that makes a, raises a point. Prior to the Civil War, in the North, you had the abolitionists. You also had the, the free soilers. And there's a difference there. And in fact, most people in the North... Would have been more like free soilers. They were, they were, were content to let slavery continue where it existed. But what they wanted to do was prevent slavery from spreading into new territory because they wanted this new territory to be free soil for free men. And when a lot of these soldiers got down to the South, they really didn't have much sympathy for the slaves. But uh, uh, Paul Bergeron from UT, he uh, in his research, he says that that. The longer that, these, uh, that the occupying forces were here, like in Tennessee, the more sympathy they developed for the slaves. And, 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 and they became anti-slavery because they were so impressed by, the, uh, by the, the, the intense desire and motivation of the
3: slaves to be free. That is such a great point. And that's one of the ways this, this war evolves into something so strange from 1861, '63, that you're so right, Barry. Uh, by sixty three, sixty four, many of these Union troops are becoming empathetic uh, because when they first came down here and they're passing through communities, the African-Americans don't join them. These strange people and the white uh, Union soldiers are going, well, this is going to be over quick. We're making such great progress. In fact, the amazing thing when they first come through, especially Tennessee, Union soldiers are going, great, man, this is warm, beautiful weather in February. I was freezing my uh, Union suit off up in Michigan. And... Uh, and then they come down here, and they're just fascinated by the beauty of the landscape, the, the warmth of the weather. Many men were gathering flowers they had never seen before and mailing them home. One guy actually from Minnesota takes some uh, uh, cotton bowls, and there are two-thirds of them uh, of a cotton bowl of seeds, and he sends it off to his wife and goes, plant this in northern uh, Minnesota and see if you can get it to grow. They love this place. but. But they didn't like slavery. It made him uncomfortable. They go, I'd want the mansion, but I don't want those blacks around me. And many of these Midwesterners would use the N-word. But by 1863, 1864, they go, well, who's doing my clothes? Who's being my nurses in the hospital? Who's taking care of my friend with uh, smallpox or typhoid? Who's building the forts that protect me? It's not the slave owner for sure. It's these African-Americans. They're here protecting me.
1: We're going to take our last break now. When we come back, we'll discuss more about politics during union occupation.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. On today's show, we're talking about union occupation of Middle Tennessee during the Civil War. We are featuring Dr. Thomas Flagle, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. We ended with a break talking a little bit about how Republican or union politics was following the union army into occupied Middle Tennessee. I think the great leader uh, in Tennessee for the Republican Party is Andrew Johnson. Uh, as early as June of 1862, Governor Andrew Johnson, military governor, I suppose, Andrew Johnson came to Columbia and held a large union meeting. Most people reported between 12 and 15,000 attendees came from Nashville and surrounding towns. Local residents were conspicuously absent. How much of a role did he play? Uh, in occupation as Union troops are moving deeper and deeper into Tennessee. It's amazing
3: the way I've learned to see history differently in just the last 10 years. I used to specialize in political and diplomatic history, the big names, and, and when I would teach my survey classes, it would be about kings and presidents and popes and emperors. Then I realized, what is the thing that keeps us alive? And now, beginning every semester, I ask the students, what are the three most important things in your life? They don't say Republicans or Democrats, thankfully. They don't say the vote. They don't say presidents. They don't say law. They say family, friends, and after that it's health, dogs, church, education. And I realized I've been teaching history the wrong way, and that's what's so great about being at Columbia State. We have a brilliant, I mean, I, I, I honestly think it's one of our very strongest departments there. Of course, I'm obviously biased, but uh, Barry and Dr. Anna Duke and Greg Mewborn and our adjuncts, We have these phenomenal conversations, along with other disciplines, about how history is truly a personal experience. And I see this very much in my my latest book uh, about the Gettysburg reunion of 1913, the 50th anniversary. I was always taught they were coming there to heal the nation. And then when I start looking, I go, wait, I'm I'm not seeing something. I'm seeing something different. And after two years, it finally hit me at 2 o'clock in the morning. The veterans are there for each other. They can't and don't want to heal Politically, they go, I can't do that, and I still hate my enemy. But that guy was at the same place I was and was a scared 18-year-old just like me. And then they would find each other and be able to share their stories and heal. We see this in Vietnam, Korea, World War II. Our veterans have terrible animosity toward those old governments, but they have incredible sympathy for the soldiers uh, that they fought against. And we see this in reunions again and again and again. We look at that, interpret it, All oh, these men are crying and hugging. This Vietnamese soldier and the US, U.S. soldier, oh, the countries are healed. No, they're trying to heal on a personal basis. And that's so much what this war was. They didn't think about Andrew Johnson. They thought about who's going to take care of me and how can I survive till tomorrow? But the interesting thing about Andrew Johnson, when he does come to these places and he has these huge uh, union rallies, nobody but nobody kowtows to him more than the local wealthy because they want to hold on to their property human and material. And so you see these guys who were uh, who didn't volunteer for the war. They're sending their sons, no problem. They're giving money, no problem. But they themselves aren't going, and they stay behind, trying to hold on to the property they spent generations trying to master. And so they have these personal relationships, even with national figures. So much of history is about personal relationships. And Andrew Johnson
2: was not As far as his personality and his makeup, he was not the best choice. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he he was not very, very tactful, uh, didn't want to be very tactful. And going back to the Mexican War, you know, Washington authorities disagreed with Lincoln's uh, appointment of Johnson as a military governor. They wanted the Tennessee hero from the Mexican War, the famous Tennessee Whig, William Bowen Campbell. That's who they wanted in that position. And and looking at it, it seems like Colonel Campbell would have been a lot
3: better choice. Yeah, and and uh, Barry has taught me and his students, uh, uh, it's interesting. We've had some relatively strong vice presidents, none stronger than Dick Cheney as of late, but that was essentially a useless position. And some people say we're getting Andrew Johnson out of the way by having him be on the ticket of 1864. Little did we know that uh, the lifespan of Lincoln was so measured. But, yeah, he, he people just did not like him, and for good reason. He was an irascible, though well-experienced, little politician.
1: Let's get back to the small stories, if we can. I, I agree with you. I think they, they tell the story better, better than that top-down view. So we, we understand that there's sort of a dichotomy going on in occupied towns, that with occupation came order. For people living close by, you know, they were able to eat. Whereas in some other areas, that wasn't a possibility. But on the opposite side of that, the war on the home front was also devastating for a lot of people as well. Both armies subsisted on the land that they passed through. Citizens were deprived of their goods, sometimes lawfully, uh, sometimes peacefully, other times not. Nimrod Porter was from Columbia, Tennessee. He kept a diary for over 50 years of his life. And uh, I wanted to read, if you'll indulge me for a minute, I wanted to read a section of his diary. That speaks to, I think, better than any that I've seen life during occupation. He writes this. The last year, 1863, has passed off, leaving many thousands with aching hearts, mourning the loss of their dear friends. Fathers, brothers, sons, and husbands, many that have been slain upon the bloody battlefields, many that have been wounded, carried off the field, and have died, many that have sickened and died in prisons, hospitals, and camps, History cannot record the great destruction of life that has been occasioned by this most unnatural and wicked war. What dreadful sufferings has been produced by this unnecessary war? No one living will ever be able to give a full picture of its consequences and distresses. The widows are seen every day begging to get back their property that has been forced from them by the ruthless hands of the soldiery, leaving them and their little ones in a state of suffering. Midnight robberies on the highways are the order of the day in every part of the country, committed in every neighborhood and everyday committed soldiers belonging to both armies and robbers that don't belong to any army trafficking trading unlawfully hiring negroes to steal mules and horses and carry them off to those robbing traders that have and are draining the country of all the mules and leaving us without any chance to live oh how long will divine providence permit such a state of affairs to continue so that's a that's a pretty poignant quote i think and and that's 1863 the end of 1863 so they've been under a little less than a year uh i'm sorry year, almost two years of occupation at that point in time it's a pretty pretty dire
3: yeah and there's two stories within that line one is the death and destruction and one is the material loss on well, the material loss nimrod porter does lose a lot but he doesn't lose his life and he doesn't lose much of his material, quite honestly. Uh, many of those who are in wealthy positions to talk about this leave behind records about how terrible life was. Oh, somebody took uh, our, our mules. Yeah, that's hard. Somebody took our horses. Somebody took so much of our grain, everything from our smokehouse. I mean, you're still alive there, buddy. There's, there's very little killing or death of civilians in uh, Sherman's march through uh, Georgia. One of the reasons why Georgians felt so bad about this is that they were relatively untouched by the war. Something that that. that, could, that Virginia and Tennessee and Mississippi have been experiencing for three years is that a the, shift
1: in thinking though uh, d- that happens during the war from combatants fighting combatants to uh, a shift where they're taking the war to to the civilians as well well
3: and, and here's the interesting thing about this is that he's not staying is he Sherman is passing through these communities within a few days, and he, like the Nimrod Porter, are most afraid not of the teeth of the snake, but the tail. Those vagabonds and the stragglers and the robbers and the and the the worst of the worst are in the back of the army, not the front, and they're the lawless element uh, on both sides and among African Americans. Any but there's this this horrific animosity where there's irregulars, if you will who do create devastation, and they do not have officers around them to control them. And they do not have, uh, these families don't have protection because so many of their young men had gone off to war. So there's this terrible vulnerability. But uh, against, uh, but to the point of losing material, the wealthy would complain the most because they had the most to lose. Where one out of four African Americans who run these forts to try to free their families, they're not thinking about themselves, they're thinking about their children, one out of four die. The interesting thing, one uh, historian, I did not, I can't remember his name, but he realized there's one group, one group that suffers no greater loss of death during the Civil War than before or after. They they die at the same rate. And that is 18 to 44-year-old white women in the South. Now, given that, uh, on the point of the death and destruction, certainly, conservative estimates have now gone up to 700,000 dead. If we were to fight that war today and lose the same proportion, we're talking about 5.8 million that's everybody currently living in Iowa, uh, um, Nebraska, North Dakota, North Dakota, and South Dakota combined. Just gone. Every, And as Drew Gilpin Faust wrote in her brilliant book, This Republic of Suffering, the saddest thing about this is you could not go, if you were under occupation, could not go to find your loved one. And one of the saddest things I'd ever have read that around about 40% of Union troops who die in the war and well over 50% of Confederate troops who die in the war are buried in unmarked graves. And as a consequence, Robert E. Lee and U.S. Grant shake hands in Appomattox, isn't that nice? There are hundreds of thousands of families who don't have anything near closure. They don't know where their brother, their son, their husband is, and they'll never know. That's a wound that doesn't go away.
1: When the Union army began to recede... Following the end of hostilities, what happened to the towns that were occupied and in part supported and benefited from Union occupancy?
3: This is something I was not anticipating. The more uh, forts and the stronger occupation, the better off in the long run a city would be. Um, December 1864, the Battle of Nashville, massive destruction, death, happened south of town. In town, during the battle, the circus is in town and still goes on. There are plays and, and, and uh, all kinds of uh, shops and markets. They're open. They're functioning fine because a union shell around the south uh, of Nashville is so strongly constructed. And many of these places, like, like Franklin, Tennessee, actually has more shops and businesses in the summer of 1865 than they had in the summer of eighteen sixty. Uh, the infrastructure that comes in, the urbanization that comes in, the rail lines, the warehouses. Uh, And indeed, when the Union Army leaves, they sell massive amounts of the food and the machinery and the land and the buildings that they took or built and they start selling it. Who can afford it? The whites with credit and wealth in the area. They're basically handing it back. But areas like Columbia, where there's not that much occupation, they suffer quite a bit. It's almost as if if you have been under occupation for at least a year and a half, you're going to be okay, if not better. If you haven't been, things are going to be miserable.
1: What were the long-term effects? What's the legacy of occupation in the South?
3: I, I hope I can help contribute to that when my book comes out so, sooner rather than later out of Fordham University Press. That, And again, I wasn't looking for this answer, but I think it's something that's just not been covered. There are some books out there about occupation. But it's still something we really don't talk that much about because we don't feel great about occupation, largely because where have we been for the last 18, 19, 20 years? Afghanistan, Iraq. Things have not been going well. We don't have these brave battles, these decisive uh, um, fights of good and evil. We don't have this clear-cut victory. It's not ending. And even we, civilians, are just turning our heads away from the men and women who are there in miserable circumstances trying to figure out what to do, especially with the population. For Afghanistan, 40% of the females can read and write. 40%? How do you create a democracy out of that? Uh, in, in Iraq, there, there's only one really uh, uh, strong enough area, uh, that being Baghdad, which a 1,000 years ago was a center of wisdom and learning in the world, now is a pit of anger and sexualism. How do you make a democracy out of that? We don't have the grand occupation uh, victories of Japan and Germany and Italy, the miracles that happen. We are stuck with these quagmires that are making us miserable. And as a consequence, I think it's difficult to look back in the Civil War and even cover the topic of occupation.
1: You certainly made me think differently about the Civil War and and how it evolved based on occupation. It, It absolutely was not on my radar as being that important facet of of that era Incre- incredible work what's the name of your book when it comes out I, I didn't title?
3: pick this title the working title uh, for my editor he said um, how the north won the, uh, how the North won the Civil War Union forts and uh,
1: Confederate occupation that's great we'll look forward to it when it comes out Thank you dr. Flagel thank you we're going to end the show with this quote from diarist Nimrod Porter farewell to the year 1865. It has been a year of great trouble, disaster, and distress for the poor, unfortunate people of the southern states, particularly Tennessee. Many thousands are doomed in penury want and premature death. Many, many have died occasioned by the same cause. Now peace is proclaimed and endeavored to be established. We went through the dangerous trials. Our lives have been spared us by the kind hand of providence alone. The war has gone the way. All of us are obliged to go, only to be known to the past." On behalf of Dr. Barry Gidcomb, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for A Journey Through Time.